We are starting tonight a series on Hebrews that's going to carry us up to the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. David Jackson's going to teach next week, and Gary Kenley's going to teach a week after that. Tim Stafford's going to teach a week after that. So we're, we're kind of rotating our way through. And tonight I'm introducing the chapter that the series is based on, which is Hebrews chapter 11. And you'll remember this chapter. It's the great chapter on faith. And we are going to look at the various individuals that are brought up as examples of faith. I love Hebrews. And uh, I, I think we usually call it the epistle to the Hebrews. And it ends as an epistle. I, I'm sure it was sent as a letter. So if you turn to the chapter 13, he says in verse 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come so, so to see you. I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greeting, and grace be with you all. That sounds like the end of one of Paul's letters. And of course, uh, Hebrews was attributed to Paul by many people uh, throughout church history, and, and that sort of began to fall into serious disfavor. Well, it was, in, it was not favored early on uh, in, I'm trying to think whether there's Latin or the Greek church. I think it's the Latin-speaking church. They didn't favor Pauline authorship. The Greek-speaking church did favor Pauline authorship early on. But then as we come up to the time of the Reformation, uh, there's more and more question about Paul having written the book. And there are a lot of things that can be raised uh, in connection with that. Uh, so for, for example, that uh, Paul doesn't open the book with anything about himself. In fact, it doesn't open like a letter at all. So if you look at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, it does not look like an epistle and uh, begins by jumping in. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times in various ways and so forth. It just jumps right in. Those who thought it was by Paul and the very few these days who think Paul wrote it think he left his name off because he was writing to the Jewish people and the Jewish people might not have thought well of his name being on it. I don't find that very good reasoning because they evidently know who is sending this when you look at the end of it. I want you to know that our brother Timothy will be released. Uh, greet all your leaders, all the Lord's people, those from Italy. They knew who he was and they know where he was. He just doesn't include his name like a, a letter. And in fact, it, it looks like a sermon. And there, uh, if you look at verse 22 and uh, chapter 13, Jim, I am glad you're here, by the way. Jim's going to lead a few songs for us tonight. I hope that it's... Uh, it's not on. It's not on. Well, I thought I turned it on. Well, maybe it was counting down. Well. I see a green light. I see a green light, too. Yeah, a green light flashing. So we'll see if it, uh, if it comes up. Uh, we're hoping to have Jim lead us in a few songs about faith. 
thought that would be a good thing for him to, uh, to lead us in tonight. He told me he was going to be a little bit late because he was having to pick, pick some books up at the uh, airport. So I'm glad that he's here. But it, it doesn't begin like a letter. And if you look, for example, uh, at verse uh, 32 in chapter 11, our chapter, notice that he says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. He sounds like a preacher coming down to, you know, he's looking at the old clock on the wall and he's saying that it's getting about time to wind up. I don't have more space to talk about the others that, uh, that I want to talk about here. So it seems to be basically a sermon that has been turned into a letter and uh, sent to a church somewhere. A as a matter of fact, um, in verse 24, that last comment, those from Italy send you the their greetings. It could be that the author is not in Italy, but the author is somewhere else, and there are people in the church or churches where he is that send their greetings to those who are receiving the letter or the sermon and they're in Italy. So it could kind of go either way. He could say, all my brothers and sisters here in Italy where I am are sending you their greetings. That would mean they're outside Italy. Or it could be exactly the reverse. So we don't, we don't get very much help there in uh, telling who it was sent to. But it seems to be a sermon that's put into a letter form. And the chapter that we're going to focus on tonight, and that we're going to focus on, in fact, for the next several weeks, focuses on faith. Our chapter divisions were made in the early 13th century, like 1205, I think it is, by a guy named Stephen Langton. And then the verse markings were not made until the 16th century, the middle of the 1500s, uh, by a guy named Robert Stephanus. Uh, neither one of them did a perfect job. And there are ways in which we'd like to get a chance to go complain to both of them. The uh, thought about the versification is, uh, and this is not true, but the legendary story that goes along with it is that Stephanus was riding horseback while he wrote the verses out. So he, he numbered the verse, verses and he published an edition of the Greek New Testament, numbered the New Testament verses, and then that worked. And so about 10 years later or so, he came along with the Hebrew Old Testament and he numbered the verses there. And so Langston's chapters, and there, there were actually some chapters back in antiquity. You can go back to like 4th century manuscripts, and in the side margins there are numbers that essentially mark off chapters, but there was never a system that got to be well known. Never a system that sort of took over until, and it's really unusual that in the 13th century, because you think about it, the printing press in 1205 still had two and a half centuries to get here. And the fact that just hand copying, someone did a chapter system that caught on that well as early as 1205 is kind of surprising. 
But enough side remarks on that. I, I think maybe the end of chapter 10 and certainly the beginning of chapter 12 belong in our chapter. Look back at chapter 10. You may remember that Hebrews is kind of organized um, like a sermon in which there's the doctrinal part and then the practical application. Although in the first uh, nine and a half chapters through the middle of chapter 10 up to about verse 18, what we would call the doctrinal section, there are two or three, uh, in one case pretty long, like about a chapter and a half, sort of places where he steps to the side and goes ahead and makes an exhortation about practical application. But most of it is kind of the doctrine that as Christians we have a better covenant, a better high priest, and a better sacrifice than uh, was present uh, in the Mosaic or Levitical system. And then he begins to call on them to act on that with verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So those are kind of summary of what he's been saying about the better covenant, the better priesthood, the better sacrifice. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with, full, with the full assurance that faith brings. And he begins there a practical exhortation that's going to go the rest of the book. And so when you come down to the end of, well, jump back a little bit to about verse 32, you find that they have had some difficult times. Remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Think of that phrase. <laughs> joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence because it'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what He promised. And then look at uh, verse 39 that particularly leads into our chapter. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That definitely ought to get into chapter 11 because it's what chapter 11 is about. I don't want you to be like those who in trials and persecutions shrink back, but rather those who have faith. And now he's going to roll out example after example of those who have faith. And then look at the beginning of chapter 12. After he does all of this, let's, uh, in fact, let's start with the end of chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith. And we're going to look at Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, and others down through Rahab, and the many that are not specifically named. They were all commended for their faith. 
yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So we have something even better than they had, more cause for faith on our part. And then chapter 12, the first about three verses, really belong in chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and of course he's, he's here picturing an arena in which you're running a race. And uh, in that arena, there are people on the sidelines and all the people that are up in the stands and are cheering are Abraham and Abel and Enoch and all the ones he's just talked about, Moses and his parents and the others. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So let's strip down for the race to the appropriate uh, clothing and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. So it looks like he's down in the race, but he's way ahead of everybody else. Fixing our eyes on him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And you ought to do the same kind of thing with the troubles that are rising for you. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, that is Jesus, of course, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that links back to the end of chapter 10. We are not among those who shrink back or are destroyed but among those who have faith and are saved. And in between is this terrific chapter. These pages that I gave you, I didn't make, as I think would be obvious. And in fact, uh, the name of the book that I got them from is Charts on the Book of Hebrews. And the whole book is just a set of charts, about a, a 75 or 80 pages of charts. And it was put together by a guy named Herbert Bateman. And uh, so I've, I've made copies of a few pieces that I, I think would be helpful for us in introducing the chapter and then in looking at at least the main figures in the chapter. This first page really struck me. The title at the top, Trusting God for the Unseen in Hebrews 11. I don't think it had jumped out to me as much before I saw this chart, even though I taught Hebrews a few times to school and worked, worked through it uh, in detail. But the chart helped it to jump out to me that the idea of what is unseen, unseen in the present, unseen in the past, and not yet seen in the future, is a constant sort of theme through Hebrews chapter 11 and a theme that involves all these characters that he's brought in. Uh, so the left-hand column, faith is believing, and then he gives these brief summaries, with surety and conviction in the unseen, in God's creating the visible from the invisible or the unseen and so forth. And then in the middle, 
uh, he gives a translation which is found on the internet and you might find this translation useful if you've never looked at it. It's called the NET which means New English Translation but it's also an abbreviation for NET, the NET Bible. You can actually buy a copy of it but you wouldn't want it, I don't think, and it'd be out of date as soon as it got to you because there, there's a team of people that work on the NET Bible and they're able to change it any day they want to. And what they do is they put the translation in and then they, like the translation, if you're putting it on a page, it'd be about five lines of translation and the rest of it is explanation of why they decided to do it that way. And so if you're interested in seeing any of that, you might enjoy looking up the, uh, the net Bible and seeing what's available there. It's just huge amount of notes, most of which are about why did we choose this translation rather than that translation. So let's look at a few of these passages and just emphasize the, uh, the unseen. You know verse 1, and you probably learned it, a number of you, not all of you, but a number of you learned it from the King James. And it didn't read like this. In the uh, NIV, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In the NET that he uses, it says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we do not see. If you remember the King James... <laughs> it said something like faith is the substance of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And the, the two words that are used here can be translated in both ways. And if you were to go through uh, English translations, which I spent a while doing a couple of days ago, um, most of the contemporary in English translations favor what would be called the subjective kind of understanding like we see here. It's faith is being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we don't see. It's, it's, this then becomes kind of a definition of faith. And we often talk about this verse as a definition of faith. If you take the more objective, as they call it, understanding of these words, something like faith is the evidence or the substance of what we hope for, the proof or the certainty of what we haven't seen, it's not exactly a definition of faith, but it's a description of the outcome of faith. That when you have faith, it's definite and certain and is the evidence of what you hope for or what you haven't seen. I'm not sure which one of these ways is right. Uh, and, and I think both of them fit very well with what we might talk about. On the one hand, if we're defining faith, and maybe on the other hand, if we're talking about the outcome of faith. But the thing that he really underscores with his title here is that it is either being convinced or it's the evidence of what we do not see. And that is 
common, that's a common thread that kind of runs through the chapter. But faith is in what we don't see or what we don't fully understand, whether it's present or past or future. Now look at the next verse that he quotes here, chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible or what was seen. And here we're thinking about it of the past, right? We weren't there for creation. We didn't see creation. But we believe that God is and that God brought out of nothing. And this is one of the clearest places in Scripture uh, in which the idea that the whole universe was created out of nothing exists. And it's very clear in this particular passage that what is seen came out of what was not visible. And we believe that by faith. So there it's sort of aimed towards the past. I'm not going to go over every one of these passages. They're not all as clear in underscoring his emphasis here. But let's look at 11 and verse 7. And uh, I'm reading from the NIV, but his translation will be similar. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that it is in keeping with faith. What was it he had not seen? It was not something in the past, right? What was it? The flood. The flood. He was told a flood is coming. He looked like an idiot. I, I love the modern movie with, uh, is it Steve Carell? That, where he plays Noah. And, yeah, the sequel to Evan Almighty. But what, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, th I'm thinking of uh, this one. Is it called Evan Almighty? The first one. Was the first one. And the second one's Evan Almighty. So this normal guy living near Washington uh, gets told by the Lord that he needs to go build an ark. And so he gets his family out to build this ark. And you have, of course, everyone thinking that he's a complete idiot. New news teams coming out there to film him. If you haven't seen it, it's really a pretty good, and if, if I remember correctly, very clean uh, film in which he, he keeps, and he, he gets up and he looks himself in the mirror and he's grown a beard like Noah and his clothes start turning in Noah's clothes and he can't stop it. It just keeps going because God wants him to build this uh, ark. Noah must have looked just as foolish as Evan does. People must have thought he was out of his mind. There's a more realistic version of that with Liam Neeson. I think it's Liam Neeson that uh, was done a few years ago that uh, has these stupid big rock creatures that's, in that's, it. Uh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, not Liam Neeson. Yeah, that was kind of weird. But it did emphasize that he was doing something everybody thought he was nuts. And that must have been the case with Noah, that everybody around him thought he was nuts. But he was warned about things not yet seen. Something will come in the future. 
He believed what he was told and he acted on it. Chapter 11 and verse 8, this doesn't use the word seen, but it uses the idea of understanding. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know or he did not understand where he was going. Again, you're looking at something future. God says, I'm going to give you this land. Let's go. And he's never seen it, doesn't know where he's going. Go down to chapter 11 and verse 13. All these people, and at this point, looking back on Abraham and Sarah, Noah, Abel, and Enoch, were still living by faith when they died. There's our praise for the glass. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. They saw them in the distance. They didn't actually see them at all, except by the eye of faith. They were told by God to do these things, and they fulfilled it and did it. And now go down to near the end of the chapter. Uh, well, I guess it's more like the middle. Let's go to uh, chapter 11 and verse 26. This is about Moses. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I, could he see it at that point? The answer would clearly be no. But it says he was looking ahead. So again, it, we have the unseen in the present, the unseen in the past, and a lot of emphasis on the unseen in the future. And then look at... Uh, Verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, again about Moses, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And there you're talking about the present, right? He saw at that time the one who was invisible, God, just like we with the eyes of faith see God. I really like the, uh, the various uh, phrases that string through chapter 11 and talk about people having faith in what happened, but they didn't see it, in what is, but they don't see it, and what is going to happen, but they haven't seen it yet. I am a stranger here, and this world is not my home. Look at verses 13 and following. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. That's a great chapter. 
We're not going to spend much of any time looking at the next two pages. I do recognize that in trying to conserve paper, I ended up copying the second page upside down, so you've got to flip everything to even look at it. But the second and third pages, you may find useful uh, to kind of keep around as we work our way through Hebrews 11. They basically take all the major named characters and uh, give you uh, the description, very brief description and verses in Hebrews 11, the person, a summary of, of the events surrounding them, and the Old Testament references. So you'd like to go back and, and read up on Abel and on Enoch for next week. You don't have much to read up on. Abel gets a few verses. Enoch gets three. Uh, but for a guy with three verses, he then in Jewish lore has massive volumes. There's a first Enoch with hundreds of chapters. There's a second Enoch. There's a lot of Jewish lore about this guy. And you wonder, well, what, what's he doing in Hebrews? How does he even show up here? Uh, the Jews apparently paid a lot of attention uh, to him. That's probably not surprising for a Jew to uh, put Enoch in such a list. And certainly there are items about his faith that can be brought out. But if you look at these two pages, you find that he draws his initial examples uh, from Genesis, for the most part, then a few from Exodus, where we come on the, second, the last page to talk about Moses' parents, and three different events in Moses' life himself, and then the Exodus community crossing the Red Sea, and then... Uh, then we jump from Exodus to Joshua. So it's Genesis, then a chunk from uh, Exodus, and then only a couple of brief items from Joshua that are in the same place. Uh, the story of marching around the walls of Jericho and the story of the woman of Jericho who hid the spies, Rahab, and uh, what she did. Then after that, he begins to say, I'm running out of time. I haven't got much space. He runs a few names by us which jump to the period of Judges. This is in verse 32. Uh, and even down to Samuel and David and then the prophets. And then he begins in very short phrases to tell us things that they did from uh, verse 33 down through verse 38. And we'll take a couple of weeks to, uh, to work through these different items and what's pointed to in these examples of faith, most of whom are not named uh, by the author of the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful chapter, and I hope that we'll all enjoy working through it.